So, and then no alcohol, no sugar, no dairy. Um, I mean, I don't know. It's like vegan or whatever the fuck you want to call it. But uh, um, it's new for me. <laughs> Doing some celery celery juice in there, too. Oh, yeah. It's uh, it's good. Stretching. Yeah, I'm feeling pretty good about myself right now. Yeah. But, so that's uh, that's it. I mean, I feel good. I just do it once a year, you know. I just... Uh, don't know i got a handle on things and um i mean i i don't miss it it's kind of it's things are different though <laughs> when it's not there uh, but i don't i don't crave it and my body feels you know it's not like i'm shaking or whatever uh but uh again it's uh week two <laughs> of a six week uh season but it's good um yeah what else is going on i don't know there's a lot of there's always shit going on, but that I heard been hearing some positive stuff. So uh, they're opening up the city tomorrow. That's why I kind of while I'm in here, things seem to be mellowing out a bit. Um, you know, no one's taking it for granted, but more people are getting stabbed. Uh, my partner got stabbed. She's an educator, so that's that's good. So they're fitting to fire up the schools. Um, but that's fucked up. Like San Francisco, the city was suing the. Uh, Board of Education, <laughs> because uh, to get him to go back to school, but uh, not providing uh, stabs for him, and uh, so it's like, you know, you gotta like inoculate him, man. It's just not, you can't just say it's safe. You know, these are like some old ass schools, and she's like got autistic kids, and they're like, you know, always want hugs or you know, or not or yeah, it's a mess. So you gotta gotta keep the teachers safe, man. Gotta keep everyone safe. So it's going. If it, if you got it, if you're afraid of it and you don't want to do it, man, I, I understand. Uh, I'm afraid of some things, but man, try to educate yourself and and do you you know you roll the dice. It's okay. I'm getting my shot. So you know, fuck yeah, man. I'm getting the wings. The tail's gonna start coming in. Be good. Let me tell you about what we listened to. That was Boston, yeah, uh, More Than a Feeling. Wow, that was just like, how about that? That's some guitar playing, huh? <laughs> Jesus Christ. Uh, all right, then, um, let's see. All right, let me grab these records. Bending down.
This is the B, and this is Radio Labor. Hope today finds you warm or something, huh? Nice if everybody in the world was warm. Some days it's hard. Okay, let's listen to a little Miles Davis to set us up here, and we'll get going.
Okay, this is the B, and you're listening to Labor and Love Radio. One Saturday before Christmas. Start out with some music. I'll play something for the memory of a good friend. Brittany Howard. Well, we're waiting for Brittany Howard. Let's see if we can get something else on I got 12 years down and I still owe nine. Pops getting old, so now I'm doing double time. Prison life got changed, so my tears, yet I still cry. Concerned convicts look at me and they all sympathize. I'm trying to conceal and contain when I'm feeling inside. Recognize the consequences of how I'm living my life. Man, what I wouldn't give just to be by his side. Cause we only live once and there ain't no next time. I promise not to do tomorrow. What I could do now from this point on in my life, that's how I'm getting down. Realizing now's the time and place to make some changes. No more tears of hate, anger, fear, and frustration. Or walking with more issues than a mental patient. Like sitting with my pops, waiting for our Lord to take them. I give them to God and ask them for the strength to face them. Cause without faith, there ain't nothing else that could replace them. Hey, girl. What's up with you? That's the thought in my mind when I look in the mirror one day. I'll be there with you instead of sitting alone in a cell holding on to your picture. Hey, Earl. 
What's up with you? That's the thought in my mind when I look in the mirror one day. One day I'll be there with you instead of sitting alone in a cell holding on to your picture. Imagine looking at the world through God's eyes. Discover the hidden meanings behind what you once loved and despised. What I want for myself is that what y'all want for me. There's so many trapped in confusion, living a life of hypocrisy. As a man, I stand up forgiven by my fellow men who say they believe as I do. Maybe that's God's plan to be an example of faith to those who all know me. Because I'm grounded in the spirit like an angel with a broke wing. My faith in God promises eternal life after death. So me and my pops will be together forever, I guess. I suppose better off than those lacking sincerity. And I pray for their souls as they take up space next to me. This is for my father. You know I know how you feel. Like I said before, I do what I can and that's real. Write a letter or call just to check up on you. Never miss no opportunity to show you I love you. Hey, Earl. What's up with you? That's the thought in my mind when I look in the mirror one day. I'll be there with you instead of sitting alone in a cell holding on to your picture. Say, Earl. What's up with you? That's the thought in my mind when I look in the mirror one day. I'll be there with you instead of sitting alone in a cell holding on to your picture. Welcome home.
Okay, well, this is the B. Um, as usual, we're having problems with our text here. Um, seems like the internet just keeps kicking in and out. Um, had a good show lined up for you today. This is the B, by the way. This is Labor and Love Radio. place where we tell you what it is and how it is and when it is and why it is. One person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. You don't have a seat at the table where you work, you're on the menu. And never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. And when I say labor, I mean you. We had a show lined up today to talk about co-ops, to talk about the future of work. Instead of, as one of my colleagues reminded me, we're talking a lot about the past, the history of work, and uh, movements among working people. So what about the future of work? What's happening with U.S. labor? Okay, one, one, one article here says, more U.S. businesses are becoming worker co-ops, and here's why. World-changing ideas called Fast Company website. In 1982, Linda and Gregory Coles were struggling to find a sitter for their 18-month daughter. After a year of searching, they just decided to open their own daycare and founded a child's place in Queens, New York in 1983. Thirty-four years later, they were ready to retire. They were going... We were going to sell the business, Linda says, but their broker suggests that instead of selling to new owners, they offer the business to their employees who could then buy it and organize as a worker cooperative. Coles hadn't heard of worker cooperatives before, but once the broker explained how it would work, Linda knew it was the right decision for them. The idea is that we could turn our business over to our employees was one of the best things we thought we could ever do, she says. The child's place is now in the process of reorganizing as a cooperative. One of just 300 worker-owned small businesses in the U.S. While employee-owned cooperatives are still a very underrepresented model of workplace organization. They deliver well-documented benefits to the businesses and employees they govern. According to the Democracy at Work Institute, DAWI, D-A-W-I, a nonprofit that supports the development of worker co-ops, employee-owned small businesses see an average of 4% to 5% higher productivity levels and more stability in growth and potential for growth. 
In contrast to traditional businesses, worker co-ops see much lower rates of employee turnover and business closure. They're also known to boost both profits and worker wages. So here's the skinny on co-ops. We've talked a lot here about Socialism and communism and the differences between them. Classical socialism, um, the surplus that workers produce are taken over by the state and supposedly distributed for everyone's benefit all throughout the society. In other words, the state owns the means of production. Kind of a non-profit, not Profit. Or is the difference between a, a newer kind of socialism or a <clears throat> ultimately communism is that the decisions that a board of directors or a management group normally would make are made by workers themselves. In other words, workers are part owners. The workers own the business. And they run it for the benefit of all of them. They're not about to let the business move to, say, southern China and lose all those jobs. They're not about to fire people at the drop of a hat like Mr. Musk has recently done. Because the people doing the work for the company are also the ones who own the company, They feel a greater sense of responsibility for and personal stake in helping the business succeed. While there's still a lot of knowledge sharing that needs to happen before co-ops go mainstream recently, policymakers are taking notice of the benefits of worker cooperatives. One of the big things, one of the big uh, contradictions of the capitalist system is that there is no democracy at the workplace. Once you enter that workplace, you can be told what to wear, what you can and cannot say, when you go to the bathroom and for how long. All these things are not democratic. There is no democracy once you enter your workplace. And of course, there are exceptions to that. But by and large, the workplace is not a democratic place. And again, I point to the example of Mr. Musk, who just recently fired thousands of workers. Because he needed to make money, because he wanted his stocks to go up, who knows why. But the decision was his and he made it. See if we can see this, the story of a child's place. If we can get this to work. Looks like we can't. Will not play. Small businesses act as crucial anchors in their communities. Rural areas, communities of color, rapidly gentrifying urban areas and small cities rely on small businesses 
as their economic base. And what typically happens is that a, a business will sell to a big a bigger business to a, or a private private equity firm, a bunch of in other words, a bunch of um, investors. So this is a an alternative. Worker co-ops, the opposite, for example, of the work of Frederick Lewis Taylor, scientific management. We were going to talk about him. Not getting any cooperation.
They're actually one of the same thing. So this is again all part of the spin that's put on this about taking from patients and giving to nurses. It's nurses that look after patients. Uh, and treatment should be given to them at a time when they require them, and then they can get on and live their fruitful and normal lives. And, and continue to tr contribute to society, when in fact, because of the ill health and the increases in their ill health and their chronic conditions, they can't do that. So everything leads back, everything leads back 
paying nurses a decent wage and ensuring we can recruit staff into the health service and retain those nurses we've got. Another union which went on strike this week was the RMT, which represents some 40,000... This is Radio Labour, our weekly Labour World Labour Report. Network Rail have decided to start, <coughs> excuse me, start imposing their unacceptable changes that our members voted against. So they have told us that no matter what happens, they will impose uh, work-life balance changes and changes to the working practices and the cuts to the safety inspection regime on the railway by 50%. So we had to respond to that. So the additional strike action that we're putting on is during the Christmas shutdown, as, as uh, from Christmas Eve, the railway shuts down for engineering works. And during that period, our members will take additional strike action which is frankly targeted at Network Rail's engineering works rather than the passenger service. Network Rail are bringing a series of changes on a, what they call a modernising maintenance programme. That involves cutting 50% of maintenance scheduled tasks. They will cut the safety regime and the inspection regime by 50%. They want to move our members to a far greater level of unsocial hours, so Saturday nights, weekend work, midweek nights. They're seeking to change their... Competency uh, levels, they want them to work outside their current skills. For many of our members in Network Rail, pay is secondary to the changes to their working lives and the facts that they probably won't <coughs> see their families at the levels that they're used to, and the, un the unsocial hours element is very important to them. On the train operating companies, they want to shut every booking office in Britain. They want to bring in driver-only operation and many other changes to our people's terms and conditions that are not acceptable at this stage, all at a cut price, way below inflation uh, pay increase. The strike action we're taking at Christmas is during the Christmas close-down where there will be no passenger services running after the evening of December the 24th. So that does not impact on Christmas because the railway is closed down from the 25th to the 26th into the 27th, and that's when we're taking the action this week's action was given with three weeks' notice, well in advance, so that we could get negotiations going. And we haven't actually had strike action for eight weeks. So there's been plenty of time for the company to put proposals that may be acceptable. And our members have, ex have rejected those proposals on network rail on a turnout of 83%. Six, Two-thirds of them voted against the proposals. So we have to move this dispute forward. I have no intention of spoiling people's Christmas. The government is, is contributing to that, that spoiling of people's Christmas because they've brought these strikes on by stopping the companies from making suitable proposals. And we'll have to keep this dispute going until we get a reasonable settlement and a reasonable set of proposals that our members want to accept. We've still got plenty of time before the Christmas Eve strikes. If Andrew Haynes and the train operating companies, Hugh Merriman, the rail minister and uh, Mark Harper, the Secretary of State, want to come to me with a set of serious proposals to improve their offer so that we can get a settlement to the dispute. We'll come over and see them as soon as possible. And when our members decide that they want to accept it, that's when the dispute will be finished. In other news, the General Secretary of the International Trade Union Confederation, Luca Vicentini, stepped down from his post on December 14th, pending a special meeting of the Confederation's General Council. The ITUC is the body which represents national union centers such as the Ghana Trade Union Congress and the AFL-CIO in the United States. Mr. Vicentini's stepping down from his post comes 
After he was questioned by police in Belgium about a bribery case involving Qatar and four people, including a vice president of the EU parliament, the four remain in jail. Mr. Vicentini was questioned by the police, but released. He said he had answered all the questions put to him and is innocent of any wrongdoing. Any form of corruption, he said, is unacceptable. The ITUC's 85-member general council, which includes representatives from ITUC affiliates around the world, is the supreme governing body of the Confederation between its world congresses. It will meet on December 21st to discuss the matter. In the interim, Deputy General Secretary Owen Tudor, re-elected at the ITUC's Congress in Melbourne last month, will fulfill the functions of the General Secretary. Here with his report about union events is Labor Star correspondent Derek Blackadder. This week, our top stories section included links to coverage of the questioning by Belgian authorities of the International Trade Union Confederation's new General Secretary, Demands for the release of an hospitality workers union leader after her arrest by Cambodian police. And of course, we had a considerable number of stories about the massive wave of wage strikes that are sweeping Britain. We also carried news of coming solidarity demos in support of persecuted trade unionists in Belarus. The Dutch government's commitment to safer workplaces after years of campaigning by unions there and the position of Peruvian unions on the political chaos in that country. And this week, our volunteers continued to track wage strikes around the world and the special characteristics those struggles have taken in healthcare, where the problems posed by inflation are compounded by the effects of three years of the pandemic. On our Working Women page this week, you'll find news about the International Federation of Journalists-led campaign to change the way women are represented in reporting on politics in Europe, a renewed push for gender pay equity by the Nurses' Union in New Zealand, and yet more denunciations of the Iranian regime by global unions. We also had coverage of the dismal conditions for women workers on Australian construction sites, where they lack even the most basic sanitary facilities. A small sample of the stories appearing on our health and safety page in Newswire this week included the very good news that the historic Bangladesh Accord on Garment Worker Safety is being extended to include Pakistan, how Canadian workers who have been injured at work are organizing for better benefits and for basic respect from employers and government, and why the fight against asbestos is continuing in Europe. Our current photo of the week is of Irish retail workers, members of Mandate, as they continue their push for a wage increase that matches the rate of inflation. This is Derek Blackadder from Labor Start, reporting for Radio Labor. Now here is Robin Roberts with Hold That Line. Hold that line. Hold that line, sisters, brothers, never we can stand and hold that picket line. We're standing here together, one for all and all for one, and we'll keep right on here standing till our victory we have won. We're united in our struggle, no, there's none us can divide. We'll yield nothing to the enemy, cause we've justice on our side. See now hold that line. Hold that line, sisters, brothers, never we can stand and hold that picket line. Hold that 
line against the bosses when they try to drive us back. Hold that line against the coppers and their armed baton attacks. Hold that line against the government, against all enemies of our class. Hold that line against the scabs to know we'll never let them pass. Hold that line. Hold that line. Sisters, brothers, never weak and stand and hold that picket line. That line against the World Bank and against the IMF. Hold that line and keep on holding it as long as we have breath. Hold that line against their dogma. Hold that line against their creed. Hold that line to save the future from their plunder and their greed. Sing it now. Hold that line. Hold that line. Sisters, brothers, never weaken. Stand and hold that picket line. And that's it. Labor news you can use. You can listen to our daily newscasts and features at radiolabor.net. I'm Mark Belanger. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about global solidarity. We're getting a sort of a hodgepodge of things. <laughs> Um, thanks to our technic here. Um, I wanted to go back to the 32-hour work week as well. This is a demand of workers all over the world. We're talking about the future of work, and we heard about co-ops, how co-op, one co-op... Um, has been able to... switch over to a worker co-op instead of just a regular business. So here, workers to owners. We weren't in the very beginning really familiar with what a co-op was. Um, we had made a decision that we were going to leave the business. We were going to sell the business. But with working with a broker who was working with us, he actually suggested that to us, and we, I, I cried. The idea that we could turn the business over to our employees was one of the best things we thought we right. could, we could right. ever do. I was a kindergarten teacher. My daughter at the time was 18 months old and I had a really, really difficult time finding a sitter. After a year and a half of being with a sitter that was not up to my standards, I decided that I was going to start my own center, and that's what I did. Within less than a year, she had over 60 kids. The following year, she had over 100. That's really how we kind of grew as a family. And some of that staff that started with us are still here with us today. I have worked with children that came here, that went, graduated from high school, went to college, had kids, and I'm taking care of their kids. That's how long it's been. A worker-owned cooperative is a place where the employees actually own the business. If anything goes wrong, they, 
They have to blame themselves. Mr. Brandon and I are administrators. We manage, we lead, but the teachers are the crux of what goes on here. Everybody was going to learn all the different parts of the business, and they would all have to make an initial investment, um, a small investment, but everybody would have skin in the game. I always thought that I would be a part of the public school community or a private school community, but given the opportunity to own my own school, it gives me the chance to learn how a company is run. It's exciting. It allows for people to feel ownership for their own selves because then it ultimately turns into it being their company and it's a reflection of them. One of the main things that we lamented over in the very beginning was if we sell the business, will the person who takes it on still carry on the same quality of business and mission that we have? If a child's place sold the school to another company and some random people just you know, came in and took over, I wouldn't continue to leave my son here. If I'm a parent and I can bring my child to a school where the teachers are invested to doing better, then I know I'm going to have a good teacher in that classroom. More than good jobs, ownership. More than good jobs, ownership. 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 Okay, that was the Democracy at Work Cooperative. They specialize in um, getting information and spreading information about uh, worker co-ops, worker-owned co-ops. And this one is, is one that I had uh, uh, contact with. Okay, A Place for Children was called, I think, um, a child's place. And there is a child's place right up on uh, San Bruno Avenue as you go up the hill there where uh, my granddaughter went. And it turned out to be a very good place for kids. Uh, so these are possibilities. There's a place in Cleveland, which we'll report on later on, maybe in a couple weeks, where 40,000 people are involved in worker co-ops, in one big co-op. And then there's a Mondragon co-op in Spain. So we'll have more, we'll have more of that, more information about this stuff because it's one thing to talk about the history of the labor movement and to bitch and moan about the the place of workers now and how workers are oppressed and but it's another thing to start thinking about possibilities and this is one of them Worker co-op. Now here's another one. This is the 32-hour work week, and this guy is talking about how he works less hours and has an extra day off and what he does, does with it. Let's listen up to that. I think it really came home when I had kids. 
With kids, you realize you'll have this kind of 18-year window, and then it's done. So every moment that I have with my kids, I realize it's something I can't, I can never buy back. No matter how much money I make or how powerful I get, I can't buy time. I don't have that long to spend with people I love, and I, I'm not going to be at my fucking keyboard at 9 p.m. on Friday night because there's no life there. The case for the 32-hour work week. Treehouse is an online school, and our goal is to take adult students from zero to job ready in as little as six months for only 25 bucks. So we have about 135,000 students around the world, and I think about 85 full-time employees, and I think we'll be at about 100 pretty soon. So we came up with the idea of the 32-hour work week when I was sitting on the couch with my wife. I think it was a Saturday night, and she just turned to me and said, what is this? I thought we could control our life now that we ran our own company, but we seem to be, you know, working a lot more. And my initial reaction was, come on, there's just too much work to do. And then I thought about it. I thought, you know what, she's right. There's no rule. You know, you have to work 40 hours. You have to work more to be successful. Average U.S. employee works 47 hours a week. Work nearly four more weeks per year than they did in 1979. I'm Andrew Chalkley and I'm an expert teacher at Treehouse. I create online uh, curricula for people wanting to get into the tech industry. Well, I'm married to Lauren. I've got a seven-year-old daughter called Hello. Imogen, a three-year-old Henry and a baby George. Henry is a handful. Uh, he's needed a lot more attention than what Imogen, our eldest, has needed. So having me home, playing with him more, helping him stimulate and grow, just having a full-time job, the, the stability of that, and still see those glimpses of your kids growing up, doing more things with them. I get to do some of those jobs that maybe Lauren would have had to have done especially juggling that with another two young kids at home and one at school is kind of a nightmare. Whereas like with Treehouse, it's nowhere near like the intensity of this treadmill that you're constantly on. You're defined by those five days and those two. That ratio is just crazy now to me. You know, it's just like, oh, I'm doing all this for this. Does that mean you get another? Oh no, it's the rose one that you get that myth of like more hours equals more productivity is totally false because people just hate the jobs, hate the managers, hate the bosses and resent the fact that they don't have time to spend with the people that they love. It was pretty shocking. <laughs> I thought Ryan was nuts and I would say that I was very strong in the opinion that it made no sense to cut your your workforce's man-hour time by, you know, 20%. But I'm not a skeptic anymore. There's a lot of value that the 32-hour work week provides. A lot of it is hard to measure, though. If you're going to break it down to just dollars and cents, then, you know, of course, it's going to cost us more on a per-hour basis for people to work on things. But the intangible benefits that we've seen are priceless. I think that when people aren't overworked, the chance for that light bulb or epiphany moment or whatever you want to call it to go off is, is increased. But, you know, I think with, with Treehouse, it didn't come out of a place of we need to foster creative energy. It was more of a we want to take care of our people as opposed to, you know, work harder and, and you know, go through life without enjoying some of the things that we all should be spending more time enjoying.
No paid vacation. No I think secret. hard work is great. I mean, I work really hard, you know, Monday to Thursday. I think it's hard for us because we view it as moral. You know, I'm working hard. You know, I'm busy. Um, you know, it's good. And yet, it doesn't really always yield results. If anyone says, we can't do it because we raise money. No, not true. You know, we can't do it because we need fast revenue growth. No, we've done that. It's really down to people to choose. Are you going to talk about how it would be nice to actually work less? Or are you going to do something about it? And the truth is a lot of CEOs are workaholics, and that's why they're not going to do it. Not, not because their company can't, and I think that's wrong. We've proven that you can take it from an experiment to something that's actually doable for real companies, for real people in you know, highly competitive markets. Right now we're able to compete against scary companies like Google and Facebook for talent because we pay full salaries and we give you full benefits and we basically take ridiculously good care of people because we think it's the right thing to do. I think this is about having a more balanced total life. Um, it's not about, you know, more family time or more play time or, or less work time. It's about saying, hey, we are fortunate to live in a period in human history where it's possible to work less. I don't believe there's an afterlife or anything like that, so this is it. It makes it even more important that we spend you know, our moments carefully. Okay, that was uh, on the big story, 32-hour work week. Um, one of the alternatives to the regular work week, just as we just saw that uh, worker-owned co-ops are. Let's listen to some music now. Seems like we can. Brittany Howard, say hi. And it's not happening. Be something out of the library. A long-haired preacher's come out every night Try to tell you what's wrong and what's right uh, But when asked about something to eat uh, They will answer in voices so sweet Hey, you will eat by and by In that glorious land in the sky uh, Work and pray Sky when you die, that's a lie. Now, Joe Hill was executed by the state of Utah November 19, 1915, for writing songs like this. Huh? But he left them to us. These are our people's songs, so you damn well ought to learn how to sing it, don't you think? Huh? It's done Baptist style. I must be some Baptists around here somewhere. You understand what I mean? Are there any Baptists here? Good. 
Let's answer back. I sing out a line, and then you sing it back, and then we sing a line together. All right? And you follow these guys. You will eat, you will eat, by and by, by and by, in that glorious land in the sky, way up high, work and pray, work and pray, live on hay, live on hay, you'll get pie in the sky when you die, that's a lie, yeah, real vociferous on that last part, all right, and the starvation army they play, and they shout and they clap and they pray uh, when they've got all your coins on the drum and uh, they will tell you when you're on the bomb uh, you will come out and they roll and they jump and they shout I give your money to Jesus they say and you'll eat on that glorious day hey you will eat, you will eat by, and by, by and by in that glorious land in the sky Side by side, we for freedom shall fight. Uh, when this world and its wealth we have gained, uh, uh, to the grafters we'll sing this refrain. Hey, you will eat, by and by, when you've learned how to cook and how to fry. Chop some wood, chop some wood, do you good, and you'll eat in that sweet by and by.
Brittany Howard there. I just want to stay high with you. Beautiful song. Word to me by Earl, and we played about Earl beginning right from the very beginning of the show about on Father's Day. The name of the song was Father's Day. By Ducky Doja. See what we got playing here. That was Willie Dixon trying to come. So let's look now at some contemporary things. We've uh, gotten into the 32-hour day. We've gotten into uh, worker-owned co-ops. What's happening in workers today? Some contemporary stuff. And I want to play some Pablo Milanese later on. Workers at the University of California reached a tentative agreement Friday night with university officials, ending a five-week strike that canceled an untold number of classes and upended the fall semester just as final exams loomed. This is when they need their workers the most. So it makes perfect sense to go on strike then. Not to break down the system, but to improve the system. So the people at the bottom who are doing all the work are getting a bigger measure of the money involved. Over 2.5 years of this contract, workers will see raises of up to 66% or over $13,000 a year at some campuses. Irene Hardikar, a member of the SRU UAW United Auto Workers bargaining team at UC Berkeley, said. Hardikar added that the tentative contract includes expanded benefits for parent workers, enhanced rights for international workers, and better accommodations for staff with medical or mental health needs, among a myriad of other things. 19,000 graduate student instructors who walked off the job November 14th on campuses across California said they could barely get by in salaries of 24000 a year for 20 hours of work a week while they pursue their own studies. While some departments pay an extra 6000 to 10000 many striking workers said they were struggling to afford high rents and had little money for food. So when you hear management saying how much money people are making, boy, it sounds like a lot, but you've also got to live in California. And living in California in places like Berkeley and San Francisco itself is getting harder and harder. Take it from one who knows. 
the bar is being raised, raised, raised every year. The contract will now go to union members for a ratification vote set to last from Monday through Friday of next week, according to the release. If approved, the contracts would be effective through May 31st, 2025. Okay, and this is Dateline the 16th, so this is just yesterday. I would like to thank Mayor Steinberg and negotiators for both the university and the UAW for coming together in a spirit of compromise to reach this tentative agreement. This is a positive step forward for the university and for our students, and I am grateful for the progress we have made together, said Michael V. Drake, president of the University of California. Okay. Positive, huh? How about the railroad workers? Okay. What did Biden do to do them, to them? And we're not getting Francesca. What's happening with Francesca? Francesca talking about how Biden screwed the railroad workers. But her sound. One thing that just happened is that the world soccer football contest taking place in Qatar now have reached the end with France playing Morocco. I believe that's on tomorrow. This has been a rather dark World Cup. Maybe all of them are because where can you find a country where workers are treated fairly? <laughs> Certainly not Qatar, and um, people are still wondering how Qatar got the the bid to have the World Cup. And uh, the answer is that they're just like everybody else. I mean, there were scandals in Ru- when it was in Russia. There's scandals when it was here. Um, it's a scandal-ridden world. Here's well, Dave now, Zyron. Is 2022 the year of sports washing? The Beijing Winter Olympics and the Qatar World Cup have shed a light on the relationship between major sporting events and governments hoping to clean up their image. 
David Zirin is sports editor of The Nation and host of The Edge of Sports podcast. He joined Hari Srinivasan to discuss what sports washing means and the many examples we're seeing around the world, from Qatar to Los Angeles. Deanna, thanks. Dave Zirin, thanks for joining us. First, let's get the, the terminology correct here. What is a definition of sports washing? Sports washing is when an authoritarian regime uses a major sporting event like the World Cup or the Olympics as a mechanism uh, for its crimes it may be committing against its populace. That's how it's usually used. But I think it should also be used as a way to describe when a country uses a sporting event to push through priorities that the citizens otherwise would not be for, like say, down of a local community to build a stadium for the purposes of one of these mega events. Uh, that's what sports washing is. How is it being used around us right now? Because there's a lot of conversation about a new golf league that mm -hmm. the Saudi government is essentially bankrolling. Well, we're seeing the rise of a lot of authoritarian Sports as a way to put the happiest possible face um, on their regime. And it's not just for internal consumption to show the country like, hey, look, we're, we're a modern country and we're hosting all these amazing events. It's also for external consumption. It's a message to the world that these countries should be part of the community of nations. And they point to things like hosting, say, the Olympics, a golf tournament, uh, a various uh, soccer tournament, whatever it may be as a way to say, we are part of the modern world, we are part of the international community, and we should be given that respect. So for people who don't follow golf, what happened here? I mean, why is this so important? And why is it different than just say, a tournament that's being played in Saudi Arabia? Well, it's so different. And I'm first of all, I'm glad you pointed out that out, that last point, because the PGA Tour, the Professional Golfers Association, they play tournaments in places that are authoritarian all the mm -hmm. time. Um, autocracies are very, very popular landing spots for golf tournaments. So the idea that the PGA's uh, hands are clean in sports washing um, is a fallacy. But what Saudi Arabia has done is it has funded to the tune of hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars a new professional golfers tour called the LIV Tour, the Live Tour. I mean, it's pronounced in different ways. Um, but the point of it is to actually draw in some of the biggest names from the PGA Tour and basically take them away from the normal course of, of golf tournaments, even to the point of offering Phil Mickelson uh, nine figures, nine figures uh, to leave the PGA Tour and join. Tiger Woods was also offered nine figures to leave the PGA Tour and join the LIV Saudi Arabia Tour, but Tiger Woods actually turned that down. But so they're writing big, big checks uh, to damage the PGA Tour. And the PGA Tour's response has been to actually ban these golfers from future majors. So uh, this, this is a big, big controversy, and it's the biggest thing to happen in golf structurally uh, since the game's beginnings. But there are some big names involved here. Phil Mickelson, Greg Norman. I mean, these were household golf names, um, very successful athletes, probably already very, very wealthy people. Mm -hmm. What do they get out of doing this? 
Well, there are a couple of things. I mean, Greg Norman has had uh, very bad feelings towards the PGA Tour going back decades, and a lot of golfers do. They view the PGA Tour as a cartel, uh, something that operates in a way that doesn't allow for competition. Uh, they view the PGA guidelines in terms of uh, what it takes in terms of tournaments to be able to uh, make it to the majors, the majors that aren't open tournaments. Um, and so there, there's a lot of griping about the PGA Tour that's been going on for decades, and Greg Norman's been at the front of that line. So, I mean, I view Greg Norman as somebody who, yes, he's taking the big check, but he's also trying to figure out how to create something different. What the problem is that he's not thinking about <laughs> where he's getting this money from and what the implications of that are. And Phil Mickelson is somebody, I mean, he's been quoted already as saying that he understands the crimes that Saudi Arabia commits against dissidents, against LGBTQ people, uh, against, of course, Jamal Khashoggi, the Washington Post reporter uh, who was killed. Uh, you know, Phil Mickelson is full aware of all of this. But as he says, you know, hey, you know, this is a chance uh, to do something uh, to the PGA Tour. So th there is a real blinkered morality at play where it's like you can understand why they're frustrated with the PGA Tour, why they want to stand up to the PGA Tour, but the method by which they're going about it is earning them nothing but not just poor media coverage, but, I mean, also a lot of questioning from their fellow golfers. There has been a line of thinking in the past that we could essentially import democracy and Western ideals mm -hmm. under or through the Trojan horse of sports diplomacy, that this is a way for countries to see something better. Are, is that still the case now? No, um, if it ever was. I mean, the idea that sports could be a Trojan horse to bring uh, human rights, modern values, progressivism, whatever word we want to use as a stand-in for it, um, I, th I think we have to look at as just a, an absolute uh, fallacy at this point. It's, it's just not tethered to reality. I mean, one of the things these mega events bring, particularly in the post 9-11 era where so much security is demanded to pull these events off, is uh, debt, displacement, and the hyper-militarization of public space. Now, how does a country pull that off without a serious uh, uproar among its populace? You know, piling up debt, displacing ordinary people, and then militarizing public space. Well, if you're an authoritarian country, um, that actually makes you very attractive uh, for the Olympics, for the World Cup, for these other mega events, because an authoritarian country can actually push these things through without having to deal with any sort of uh, democratic roadblocks. Now, what you see, though, when, say, the Olympics are coming to Paris in 2024 um, or Los Angeles in 2028, what you see is actually these countries in, you know, quote unquote, Western democracies acting more like authoritarian governments and pushing through uh, building plans, pushing through police plans, pushing through security plans that would make authoritarian countries envious. But they're able to do it through the guise of sports, through the glory of sports, through the excitement of sports. And that's the other side of sports washing. I feel like we don't talk about it enough. It's not just to cover up the crimes of an authoritarian country. It's also about pushing through proposals that people would otherwise reject if they didn't come wrapped in the bunting of sports. So you're saying that, in a way, the city of Los Angeles can displace, say, homeless populations mm -hmm. a couple of years in advance as a way, well, to pave the way for the new complexes that might be coming for the Olympics down the road. 
Uh, that's what they're doing. I mean, I've talked with homeless rights activists in Los Angeles, as well as Olympic planners. And basically what they're able to do right now is displace people from uh, the, the tent cities that have been erected in Los Angeles because there is a housing crisis in Los Angeles. There is an affordable housing crisis in Los Angeles. And instead of dealing with that, the root problem, what they're doing instead is rounding up and displacing and destroying uh, the, the park tent cities that have been erected so people have some form of shelter. And how are they able to do this? How are they able to do this above, uh, instead of there being some sort of civic response, is they talk about the 2028 Olympics and the importance of preparing for the 2028 Olympics, whether that means building infrastructure for it or just making the city a place that they think is going to be more sightly for an international audience. What is the role of the IOC here? Because they have a pretty large checkbook when it comes to deciding for you know what city that they're going to, and it will have a huge ripple effect on at least a local, if not regional economy. A massive ripple effect. I mean, the International Olympic Committee, um, first of all, has bought hook, line, and sinker, this idea that they are somehow this, this traveling roadshow of democratic ideals and international togetherness. And therefore, whatever country they go to, no matter how authoritarian, no matter how many human rights abuses, they are somehow making that country better by the sheer presence of the Olympics. Now, what happens when reality intercedes with that? What happens when they say, oh, we're going to hold uh, the Winter Games in China and we're going to make China a, a somehow a, a better place uh, just through our presence there? And then, of course, there's a ton of evidence to the contrary. Uh, in terms of attacks on, on, on human rights workers, on, uh, on, on Muslim population, on, on all sorts of issues we can talk about that China transgresses human rights. Uh, the Olympics feel like they're still doing the right thing. So then they find themselves in a position of making excuses for China and, and actually being a force that aids and abets directly uh, China's uh, political operation. I mean, and they do that in every country where they go. They're, they're always gonna be the cheerleader of whatever country they're in, whether it's China, Russia, France, the United States, they're gonna stand by them no matter what that country is doing uh, to prepare for the Olympic Games. So the IOC, I mean, becomes more than just sort of like a, a quiet partner. They become a political force in these countries to justify what we've been discussing, the debt, displacement, and militarization, because they say not only are the Olympics worth it, but we're actually leaving this country better than where we found it. The World Cup, obviously billions of people excited about it. It's going to be played in a place where there have literally been mm -hmm. thousands of workers who have died in, in horrible conditions. But FIFA says that's not really our place to decide. No, because Qatar wrote a, a very big check. And the Qatari monarchy has decided that it will spend billions of dollars of its country's wealth uh, for the purposes of sports washing, of presenting itself to the world as somehow this modern monarchy that needs to be accepted into the broader society. Now, the, the, the uh, crimes in Qatar have been so extreme. I mean, you mentioned the deaths of, of migrant workers. Uh, it's estimated that as many as 30 to 40 workers have died directly in just making the stadiums, creating the infrastructure for the World Cup itself, let alone the hundreds of deaths that have taken place um, in other projects. And the conditions that these migrant workers have faced is absolutely horrific. So one of the things that the two biggest unions in England 
uh, are demanding, along with Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch, is they're saying that FIFA needs to put aside $440 million. I don't know how they came up with that figure, but it's certainly a big number to create a migrant center in Qatar where people can get support, have grievances met, um, and, and just some sort of, of, of social infrastructure for the migrant workers in Qatar, because currently there, there is none. There's nowhere they can go in the face of these labor abuses. And th this call has been been taken up by some very high up people uh, with the English uh, with the English national team. So we'll see if that goes anywhere. But that's really what I'm talking about, Ari, is, is this idea that people are going to have to agitate for these institutions to act in a different way than they've been acting really for the last century, but particularly since 9-11, where the pressure to have a security games has been very intense and has cost millions upon millions of dollars. You mentioned the pressure that the unions in the UK and Amnesty International has put on FIFA. What is FIFA doing to try to get ahead of this? They're abdicating is what they're doing. They're trying to create uh, some semblance of friendly public relations in the in the in the in the run-up to the World Cup. So this isn't the issue that we're talking about each and every day. See, already this World Cup is comes draped in shambles. All right, because the World Cup should be happening right now. And when Qatar won the bid, they said, we are going to create state-of-the-art air-conditioned stadiums. So even in the 109-degree summer heat, uh, World Cup soccer can be played. Uh, that turned out to be, of course, a fantastical lie that uh, people at the time said that that will never happen. But FIFA was willing to accept that because it was also accepting uh, some very large checks, uh, not to mention a bribery scandal about why the World Cup went to Qatar in the first place that's been reported upon extensively. So I think what the FIFA is trying to do is to get ahead of the issue over the next several months with, with the hopes that when the games start, we're not talking about the deaths of migrant workers and the years in prison LGBTQ people face in Qatar, uh, the fact that some countries are telling LGBTQ fans uh, to not even travel to Qatar during the World Cup, that they can't guarantee their safety. They don't want those stories out there. They want stories of a Qatar that is actually in better shape than it would have been precisely because of the presence of the World Cup. Given the prestige that's at stake, given the eyes of the world are watching, and given how integral soccer is, especially in the lives of pro athletes, I mean, should we be putting this onus on the Messies and the Neymars of the world or their countries? I mean, should they be boycotting the World Cup? How, how, do, we, how do we force this kind of change and attention uh, to happen? You know, it's so interesting, Hari, because what, what you're asking is a question that I'm seeing across society on a host of issues. Like, does it really move the needle to have a celebrity mm -hmm. speak out for change? You know, does a celebrity, whether it's an athlete or a movie actor, does them using their platform to speak out on an issue actually make a difference? And I think there's a lot of evidence that says that our attention on celebrity, our attention on the famous stepping up, doesn't necessarily move things forward. I mean, it can create uh, you know, tremendous awareness. It can amplify issues already at play. Uh, but at the end of the day, what's going to be needed are institutions, uh, ordinary people, uh, unions, human rights organizations uh, start to see these games, whether it's the World Cup, the Olympics, or what have you, as political events. Here we are having a conversation while Brittany Greyer is still 
being detained by Russia. There's clearly a political pawn here. Yes. It's, right? It's, it's not because of whatever trace of whatever she might have had in a vape or not. I mean, there hasn't been a trial. There hasn't been evidence presented. Nobody knows exactly why. But we do know that she's one of the greatest athletes the United States has ever produced. Absolutely. And, and one of the things that you've seen is a lot of women's basketball players have said that they're not going to play in Russia, where women's basketball is not only a huge sport, uh, but it's also extremely lucrative. And so, you know, those kinds of boycotts actually do make a difference. Uh, they, they create a, an atmosphere of pressure on Russia to release Brittany Griner or at least negotiate her release. I mean, that's the kind of sports diplomacy that we need, sports diplomacy from below, sports diplomacy that isn't forced upon athletes uh, to say things they might not necessarily want to say or uh, try to make it like they mean things they don't necessarily mean. Uh, we, we need a constant level of pressure um, around Brittany Griner's release, first of all, on the U.S. State Department to make sure they're dealing to make this happen. Uh, but we also need, and we've seen, uh, athletes speak out in solidarity with Brittany Griner. See, that's the kind of political sports collision that can actually make a difference. Uh, and I, I think that uh, the, the seizure of Brittany Griner and the creation of this Brittany Griner political prisoner in Russia has been a real consciousness-changing moment for a lot of athletes because it's one thing to speak out about injustices here at home, whether it's uh, police brutality or whether it's equal pay. Uh, it's another thing to start stepping onto that international stage, an international stage that gets you paid uh, to be able to raise the issue of Brittany Griner's freedom. But when yeah. you have somebody who's a friend, who's a teammate, who's somebody that a lot of these players have known since they were all teenagers coming up together in AAU, I mean, it creates a different kind of uh, political calculus and a different kind of political momentum. I mean, we've never had a generation of more politicized athletes than we do in 2022. What they do with that is going to be an interesting thing to follow. Dave Zarin, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Okay, so that was Dave Zirin with uh, Skinny <clears throat> on... Uh... Sports washing, how um, sports are used in sporting events in wildly popular worldwide sporting events are used to justify the continued oppression and the intense, more intense oppression of working people and thousand working people died, workers died, and some of the stories are horrific. People who died and um, whose reason for dying was changed to fit, you know, they'd say, oh, his, his heart stopped. Well, <clears throat> why did his heart stop, you know? What was he doing? Well, he was working in 109-degree heat, or he couldn't get water, or, uh, you know, he was overworked. Whatever. Dave Zirin. I'm going to try once more now. See if we can get... The 
habituation room, and it's not coming through. Let's see. Nope, we're not getting it. Which is too bad. This is how I wanted to end the show. Willie Dixon. Rail workers uh, continues, and there's a lot of discussion and hand wringing. You know, what did Democrats do? What didn't they do? Did they sell out rail workers? Did they have to take this vote? And I gotta say, Trey, I don't know how much you've been following it, but I was following it. You know, um, and I was like, there has to be a reason, right? Like they, mm-hmm. they tried. Mm-hmm. I don't buy that. You know, 
all you know all these Dems would sort of go along with this. And yes, I know some in both the you know obviously Bernie Sanders in the Senate and you know a couple of squad a few squad members in the House didn't ultimately vote to effectively break this strike preemptively. And no, there's no there's no still there's no saving grace. There is no part of this that's like oh no no no. Biden and other Democrats totally had real workers in mind. They're going to get to them. No, it is. It looks bad from whichever way you slice it. Um, it really looks like the so-called most pro-labor president in recent memory. Um, yeah, had his Patco moment, which, you know, Reagan breaking the uh, the airline um, controllers uh -huh. uh, strike in the 80s. It feels like this is his moment, and especially because so much of this could have been preempted and this could have also been punted another 60 days and that was also voted down so just a little bit of what happened for those of you who have not been following or feel like it's very complicated um it is it, it is but it's not uh so this is um oh no this is not what i wanted to bring up that's our next story this is from in these times um why the pro-union President Biden pushing a labor deal that rail workers rejected? Why is he pushing it? Um, so the maneuvering Washington this week comes after nearly three years, three years of union negotiations with the nation's highest profitable rail carriers. Ahead of a previous strike deadline in September, a tentative five-year agreement was brokered with the help of Labor Secretary Marty Walsh and with Biden's personal involvement. But on Monday... Um, over 400 trade groups publicly urged federal intervention to preempt a strike. Um, so effectively, there was something that was brokered. The the unions were like, nah, this is not good enough for me. You know, we're going to worth it looking at striking. And 400 trade groups, so read big money, uh, urged Biden to call on Congress to exercise their power under this arcane law, the 1926 Railway Labor Act, which hand ties uh rail workers and to override the four unions votes and impose the september agreement without any modifications meaning without sick days uh congressional leaders from both parties met with the president on tuesday and said they would fast track his request to force the tentative deal and stop a strike but sanders and progressive democrats insisted that any such legislation include at least seven days of paid sick leave although the unions have been demanding 15. um now just for some Sorry, just for what happened, um, Nancy Pelosi put forward two separate measures, a bill to preempt the strike and impose the September deal as it is, and a separate resolution granting rail workers seven paid sick days. Both measures passed on Wednesday. The bill to block a strike and force the unpopular agreement on rail workers passed 290 to 137 with eight Democrats and 129 Republicans voting against it. The separate measure to tack on paid sick days passed 221 to 207 with only three Republicans voting in favor um and then the senate voted 80 to 15 to pass a preemptive basically stopping the strike and then 10 republic with 10 republicans and four democrats and independent senator bernie sanders voting against it um then the seven days of paid sick leave went up for a vote that needed 60 it only got 52 six republicans voted for one Dem democrat joe manchin of course voted against it so to sum that to sum that up, Biden effectively was called on by, by cor you know, corporations, by money, and was like, hey, money said, hey, Warren Buffett, one of the railway mm. 
owners said, hey, you got to break this strike. I don't give a shit. The holidays are coming up. Right. Uh, we can't afford to lose money. Actually, we can, but, you know, right. we don't want to. And uh, you need to do this. And so what did Biden do? He called on congressional Democrats, Nancy Pelosi, and they put that up for a vote. Now, there was an effort to have this second um, bill passed, which said, OK, there can be seven days of sick leave, sick leave, which wasn't even what they asked for in the first place. They asked for 15 days that did pass in the House with Republicans, by the way, and then failed in the Senate. Now, the real thing is this. When you already vote to break a strike preemptively, you're rendering that workforce impotent and powerless to take their own workplace into their own hands, to take their to take anything into their own hands. Right. So that second piece, which I understand, you know, progressives like Jamal Bowman worked very hard to get through. It still doesn't mean anything if you already voted to say, yeah, 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 you don't have the right to strike, but here's half of the sick leave days that you wanted. Like, it doesn't actually add up. It's not good enough. And effectively, what it is, is again, Biden saying, I can't afford to have any kind of, uh, any kind of work stoppage, any kind of dip in the economy on my watch. And instead of squeezing the railway owners and having them suck it up, I'm, I'm deciding to openly and publicly let these workers also be the ones to suck it up. Yeah. I, you know, um, the shameless plug, I've got a, I've got my own show similar to this one that you're going to be on soon in the near future called weekly skews. It's every Tuesday night on my uh, pages and whatnot. And last week we were talking about this coming, this building situation. I spent the whole time just sort of like screaming at my co-host. It's not his fault, but you know, like <laughs> why, why, why don't understand why they're doing this? You know, meaning like the demo, it seemed like this was going to happen and it was already pissing me off because yeah, they just really showed their true colors. It's bothered me for years that the Democrats haven't done a better job of like regaining their status as like the party of working people or whatever. Right. I've always thought, I thought for a long time that that's a card they should be better at playing in the first place let alone swinging in the other direction, but it just proves that there's, I mean, with a, a handful of actual progressive exceptions, like Bernie and the squad and whatnot, accepting them, there's no one in our, you know, country's governance that actually gives a shit <laughs> yeah. about uh, regular people or working people or whatever. And I just think that that's a damn shame. I mean, you, the way you summed it up. Yeah, I agree. It's clearly, that's what happens. Like, you know, the, Fat cats, big money called and said, like, you know, it's almost Christmas, right? You know how much money everybody's about to make? Like, we can't have that not happen. A bunch and of Scrooges got together and yeah, were right. like, hey, so like, we killed the ghost of Christmas yeah. future and present and past. And it's made all the more egregious by the fact that it it just comes down to something that's a straight up standard in the whole rest of you know the western world or developed world or whatever you want to call it like paid sick leave it's not that it shouldn't be that big of a deal but all because of that uh yeah absolutely and, and and i think that the plight of rail workers and like sort of that sounds really dramatic but it is is starting to sort of break through like the fact that they often even when they're working they get called in like to to get to like work their shift at hours of notice, right? Yeah. Um, that they're being asked to operate trains miles long, often with only two right. and even more increasingly only one operator, which seems insanely dangerous. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so it's, again, it's like 
it, it, I mean, it's some monopoly shit, right? It's like the if you own the utilities, oh, I got the train stations, you know, right. you're running the board. Well, you're doing really well. They've like the train companies have been making more money while also spending less on labor. Like they've been involved. Okay, that's the habituation <clears throat> room report about the rail strike and how Biden, supposedly a pro-labor president, the most pro-labor president in many years, breaks the strike using his power under a, an ancient law and forces the workers back to their jobs without any kind of change in their status. Now, I, I, it's about time to tune out here, but I want to reiterate, these people, these workers, have one day, in many cases, not one day of sick leave. And this is the B. Sorry about our technical problems at the beginning. We're working tirelessly to fix this station. Please tune in next week for Labor and Love Radio at 10 a.m. And stay tuned right now for Flat Black Plastic. Remember, if one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table that is where you work, you're on the menu. And never, but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. Good week and good work. See you next week. Put a CD in. Where does this plug in? You can leave it out. Leave it out. Leave it out. I'll just put a CD in. Okay. After I called you, the the stream went down. After a while, though, off and on. You didn't. You didn't try turning this computer on and off. Yes, I did. Twice.